The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. If you want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, put days like this in context. Call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. In an ugly enough market, sometimes just the absence of new negatives can trigger a rally. And that's exactly what happened today, where the Dow soared 551 points. S&P surged 2.65%. And the Nasdaq pole vaulted 3.43%. Mostly because we didn't get hit with any terrible news. Last week, for example, we got word that Credit Suisse was in big trouble. And people started talking about us next Lehman Brothers. Remember that? Everybody came on and said that. Remember, Lehman collapsed and it almost brought down the entire financial system. So when you hear talk about a Lehman event, it is indeed terrifying. Today, though, Credit Suisse says it's making great progress in selling its U.S. asset management business. Now, we don't know how much that'll bring in, but any sizable amount of money will take a Lehman-style outcome off the table. Plus, I don't think the Swiss government would let them go under, so poof, box check. But it's very hard to refute all the Lehman moment talk because nobody wants to sound too positive just in case something goes wrong. If you say it's safe to keep your money in Credit Suisse, not that you like the stock, just that there won't be a bank run and you'll lose your deposit, and then something happens to the stock, believe me, you'll be hounded for the rest of your life as someone who endorsed a defunct institution. It's a real black eye, even though you don't deserve it. It's not worth it. Or how about the analysts? You've always got to worry about these guys in the bear market. What if some analyst jumps on last Friday's negativity? Remember that last? Yeah, it was breathtaking how bad the last hour was. It says, you know what? That's it. I want you to sell, sell, sell the whole darn market. But that didn't happen today, even though a lot of us expected it. In fact, Uber Bear Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley, who has been dead right the whole way for the last year, actually went short-term positive on the market. That's right. Near term says buy it in a terrific piece titled, and I quote, 
technicals may gain upper hand on fundamentals if rates come in, end quote. Now, I love what he wrote here. Just listen to this. Quote, last week's uh, infatuation with the CPI, PPI, consumer price index, uh, producer price index, may be a trap for the inflation bulls. The 200-week moving average of serious floor of support until companies fully confess or recession officially arrives, both of which could take several more months and lead to a technical rally in the short term. In other words, what he's basically saying is, look, you got a little while here to have some fun and games. It's okay. Now, it's highly unusual. I mean, frankly, extraordinary for a respected fundamental analyst to invoke the charts, the 200-week thing. But I think it was actually a brilliant move, one that caught many bears with their pants down, hence today's rally. At the same time, he points out that last week's terrifying inflation numbers come from some of the most, they were backward-looking data. We already knew it. It's from before. Rearview mirror. Then Wilson gives you the most important line, and I quote, inflation has already peaked and could fall rapidly next year as comparisons become very difficult, end quote. In other words, inflation might be rolling over, and the recent spate of hideous numbers really represents the peak. This is from Wilson, and that's why Wilson breaks a tradable rally, at least until companies start reporting weak earnings due to the Fed-mandated slowdown. He wants you to take advantage of this temporary interregnum, a bullish window, the biggest window in ages. That cuts in favor of this rally lasting for more than one day, which would certainly mark a very big change from what we've gotten used to. There have been six one-day wonders, six, and every one of them has led to terrible losses. I'm not done with the no negatives. We had nothing new in China or Russia. Reliable two-front bear assault didn't happen. And that's despite the fact that the Russians are on the offense in Ukraine, now shelling regularly civilian targets, while President Xi, for, uh, for life, I should say, President for life Xi, just repeated his Taiwan is ours mantra at the big Communist Party confab. Not enough new there to freak anyone out, though. So is that enough to do the job? Look, I think Wilson's right. We got, we're range-bound. Okay, it's a range-bound market, and we hit the lower end of the range on the give-up Friday, but I also think we can visit those lows if the earnings fall off a cliff. In the end, though, what's allowed us to rally has more to do with the market's new leadership than anything else, and this I didn't get from Wilson. This is my own thinking here, all right? Last week, we had some remarkable quarters from J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo. More on that later. And then today, we got amazing numbers from Bank of America. The country's still flush. Delinquencies are incredibly low. The situation is just plain optimal for the big money center banks. The best it's been since 1991. And they make a fortune every time the Fed tightens. So they, not tech, are the natural leaders here. Now, for many years we've been used to, some say spoiled, I don't think so anymore, used to be a a market led by tech, especially Fang plus Microsoft. We had wonderful runs in anything connected to enterprise software to the point where there are now venture capital firms that only do enterprise software, whether they're making money or not. They have a lot of money losers. But things have gotten very tough for, for tech, particularly since November peak last year. Now, I'm a big believer that the old Facebook still has some gas in the tank, although I know I'm in the minority here. I'm betting there's still some growth in Instagram and Facebook. I think WhatsApp's terrific property. Reels is becoming a true rival to TikTok. As for Apple, Morgan Stanley says it's a good defensive tech. I don't know. I don't think any tech is defensive when the economy's falling apart. But with Apple, I still say you're the same. Own it, don't trade it. No one believed Amazon could keep doing well because of all these logistics companies and freight forwarders. Keep the, they keep disappointing. 
and being downgraded. I mean, so it's pretty sell, 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 sell. And therefore, for Amazon, even though I like it. Netflix reports tomorrow's got a new narrative advertising, which is why the stock's showing signs of life. But it's much smaller than its fang brethren. I think Alphabet's just too darn cheap because in a slowdown, advertising dollars tend to consolidate among a couple of players. And they will consolidate on Google, which offers the best value and provable return on investment. Finally, Microsoft has its own PC cross to bear. I worry that the rest of the business simply can't make up for the expected Windows shortfall that we saw all during the semiconductor company report last week. Long story short, we lost our tech leadership nearly a year ago when we haven't had much that could replace it. But you need leaders to have the market go higher. But now we've got these amazing numbers from Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo. So the banks are getting a battlefield promotion like Pop got. Why not? The Fed's allowing these companies to make a ton of money by paying you next to nothing for your deposits and then reinvesting that money risk-free in short-term charges. What a trade! And the Fed's still tightening. James Bullard, terrific guy, head of the St. Louis Fed, said we may need two more 75 basis point rate hikes by the end of the year. And I regard him as the most level-headed and reasonable person in the Fed. That would put us at right at 5%. At those levels, there will be more defaults and delinquencies. But the net interest margin or NIM expansion will more than make up for it. It has been years since the banks led the averages, but they used to be multi-year leaders because of mergers and streamlinings and rates. Then they ran out of takeover targets. They got too big. I always thought the group had the potential to become a leader again. But the banks could never pull it off because the Fed kept rates so low that it was hard for them to make money. Now that's over. Unless we go into a severe recession, the banks could maintain their leadership position for a while. These are all big changes, people, for the market to adjust to. We went from thinking that all rallies are one-day wonders, thinking one might have staying power because of Wilson's surprisingly bullish comments. It seems zero to 60 a little too fast for me. But I think it is a mistake to change our stripes that fast. Bottom line, though, for the travel trust, we continue to do a little selling into strength. We're not buying into everything here. So we'll have enough cash to put to work in the next downturn. But... How can you not respect the possibility that Wilson's right and this rally might be more than a one-day wonder, given how great he has been in this downturn? John in Tennessee. John. Uh, Professor Kramer, good booyah. Booyah right back at you, John. What's up? Yeah, I was wondering, uh, what do you think about a share of SNAP, S-N-A-P? I've been having it for many, many months. No, no, we don't want to snap. We don't want to snap. When it comes to social media... We are going to like Metaverse more than Snap because they have bigger demand, better balance sheet. I like them. Hey, let's go to Bob in Florida. Bob. Hello, Jim, and a big booyah. This is Bob, first-time caller from Vero Beach, Florida. I love Vero. My best friends are down at Vero. My uh, my friend at the SPs are down there. What's going on? Uh, Thanks for taking my call. My, My question tonight is in regards to Celsius Holdings. Symbol C-E-L-H. I've seen the CEO on your show a few times. I know that Pepsi just invested $500 million in the company. And I'm seeing more and more of it. I'm seeing it in end displays in Walmart now. I'm seeing it in sales circular in Publix. I saw it being plugged on NASCAR the other day. And even it has its own refrigerator in the convenience store. I spoke to a Pepsi distributor last week, and he said, the Pepsi may start distributing it next month. My question well, is this. Mm-hmm. Is Celsius a buy at the current price? Celsius for real. Today? Celsius for real. See, I have one of my guys over here that said, Brian had like three Celsiuses 
uh, just this morning. You, know, you get pumped up with the Celsius. I'm still a coffee guy. I represent old school. Celsius is new school. And I got to tell you, I think the Celsius is real. Even though it's up six today, I think you can go much higher. Thank you for the call. All right, for the Travel Trust, we're doing a little selling in strength so that we'll have enough cash to put some work in the next downturn. Go watch our broadcast this morning. But I respect the possibility that the rally might be more than a one-day wonder because the guy who called it, Wilson, is so good. Oh, man, tonight. Kroger announced last week that it plans to buy Albertsons in a nearly $25 billion deal. But what are the odds of approval for this mega supermarket merger? I'm digging into the details. Then Wells Fargo shot the lights out in last week's quarterly report. And I'm running through the charitable trust stock and give you the key data that you need to know. And our own Bob Pisani, that's right, is out with a new book. It's called Shut Up and Keep Talking. So we're going to do just that and hear more about his history of the street and the inspiration. And I love this book. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Here's some exciting stuff. Last Friday we got word that Kroger's buying Albertsons. And our first reaction was, no way, as in there's no way the Biden administration will let this deal go through. This White House has made it clear that they're no fan of large mergers. 
especially when you can make an argument that they'd be anti-competitive. The FTC and the antitrust division of the Justice Department are hard, hardliners now. They both examine these deals. They think corporate consolidation is a problem, something that causes consumers to get hurt by higher prices. So they're extremely skeptical when major players in the same industry want to join forces. And this Kroger-Albertson's merger would be exactly that kind of deal. Two of the nation's five largest grocers combined to create a nationwide colossus with dozens of brand names and thousands of stores. Doesn't help that we're all very worried about food inflation, right? One of the most stubborn components, even as most agricultural commodities have come down in price. The supermarket plays a huge role in determining prices for food. So my gut instinct was to say this deal would be a tough sell because the regulators just aren't going to bite. But over the course of the day Friday, we did some reporting, serious reporting. Then over the weekend, we did some thinking, serious thinking. And now I think there is a good case to be made that Kroger could actually make this deal happen. Tonight, I want to walk you through it, though, because if the deal goes through, Kroger's stock becomes a lot more attractive. First, though, let's start with the facts. Kroger's a huge set of chains with more than 2,700 stores. Albertson also has a ton of uh, different brands across nearly 2,300 locations. And they've been trying to put themselves up for sale for a little while now. Both stocks have been underperformers in recent months. Uh, uh, But now Kroger's coming in paying a 32% premium versus where Albertson's was trading before news of the deal broke. I remember when Albertson's stock was so low. I liked it. People like laughing at me, except for the CEO. Now, as part of the transaction, Albertson's also paying a huge special dividend. Hard to figure this one out. Of $6.85 per share in a few weeks. But you got to buy the stock before the close on October 24th to get a piece of that payout. And, hey, if they can get regulatory approval, I think this makes a ton of sense for Albertsons, for Kroger's to buy Albertsons at a $20 billion valuation. Why? Well, if you read the press release, they go into a lot of detail about how the deal accelerates Kroger's go-to-market strategy and creates value. But if you take out all that authentic Wall Street gibberish, it all comes down to scale. Kroger combined with Albertsons would have more heft with suppliers. They can be tougher. They'll have larger loyalty programs. Better for you. And they'll find it cheaper to make their own knockoff private label brands. And that's where the real saving comes in for the consumer. That's why Magic believes a deal can generate $1 billion in annual synergies net to divestitures, although it could take four years to get there. These gains are coming from better sourcing, better technology, better supply chain, better manufacturing, and lower general administrative costs. More importantly, Kroger expects the deal to be additive to earnings in the first full year. That's pretty amazing. They expect it to be double-digit additive by year four, please, and when all the cost savings kick in back then. They're also talking about a 30% boost to annual free cash flow by year four. Those are phenomenal numbers. Financially, it's pretty darn compelling. Why wouldn't they want to do this deal, which would transform them into the second largest grocer in America, right by Walmart? Plus, they're taking on a major competitor. It's, a great, it's, it's just great for business. The only real question here is if the government will let it happen. Let's start with Kroger's case. Though first I want to point out, it's very clear they know this is an uphill climb, which is why they were, aren't even planning to close the deal until 2024. I like that. They're being very realistic. They recognize they've got to get the FTC and the Department of Justice and Trust Division on board, something a surprising number of companies still don't seem to understand. And I've got to tell you, in another administration, I think Kroger's case for the deal would be a slam dunk. First, uh, what they've said that they're willing to do is divest a ton of stores between 100 and 375, forming a new competitor that will be owned by Albertson's old shareholders. They're willing to spin off a pretty sizable chunk of the business here, so their combined footprint doesn't create any competitive situations on a local basis, and they will be well-funded. As CFO Gary Millerchamp explained, 
Milch is he's smart guy. Uh, it's, it's the cleanest way to get regulatory approval. Just spin off anything you need to spin off to get the FTC and justice on board. On top of that, the other powerful case for letting this deal happen is that reasonably there really isn't so much overlap. I mean, look at this. Take a look at this map with Kroger's and supermarkets. Kroger's supermarkets in blue. Albertsons in yellow. Kroger's clustered in the Midwest and the Southeast. Albertsons is all about the Northeast and the West Coast. While there's some overlap, that's easily taken care of with the spin-off plan. Kroger also argues that they can provide a better customer experience. If they have more scale, they already have pretty good customer experience, frankly. Uh, they think better technology for online shopping, a better assortment of fresher products, and most important, lower prices through the use of their private label products. I have to tell you, I, find, I found it very hard-pressed to make out what the difference was between the branded and the private label. They both taste good. In fact, other than price. In fact, Kroger's promising to invest $500 million into getting prices down for its customers, along with uh, putting $1.3 billion into refurbishing Albertson stores. Part of this plan involves greater expanding their, their knockoff private label offerings. I put this together with the help of Mr. McMullen. He's the CEO of Kroger's. And they'll do it a lot more efficiently by joining together their manufacturing capacity with what Albertsons has. Look at these. These are very interesting price differentials. And those of us who have shopped at these places know that these are real. And it just is a better deal. For me, though, the most important piece of the puzzle is that the grocery business remains highly competitive. This isn't like the airlines where a handful of players own everything. And look, even if Kroger's allowed to buy Albertsons, they'll only have 13% market share, far below the number one player, Walmart, at 22%. So you need it to go against Walmart. However, they've still got to convince two entities, well, particularly one, the FTC, but uh, Justice Antitrust, too. But it's going to be FTC's work to say that this is okay. Unfortunately, the people now running the antitrust division of the Justice Department have made it clear they do not like deals like this, where they do a spinoff or investiture to offset the damage from an otherwise anti-competitive merger. Listen to what Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust, Jonathan Kanner, had to say earlier this year. And I quote, merger settlements that include partial divestitures, too often result in what might be called concentration creep. This happens when divested assets end up in, in the hands of someone that does not make effective use of them, end quote. On top of that, the regulators had a bad experience in the grocery industry back in 2015 when they let the old Albertsons buy Safeway. The FTC made them divest 168 stores to get the deal through. But the company that bought most of those stores went bankrupt just eight months later. Eight months! Albertsons actually ended up buying back 33 locations after the deal went through. That's an extremely unhelpful precedent. Hey, speaking of the FTC, I think the real problem here is, is Nina Cott, who runs the FTC, uh, and she's a serious antitrust hardliner. And we kind of know where she stands here. Why? Because she wrote about that Albertson Safeway merger I just mentioned. It was in a Law Review article a few years ago. She called it a spectacular failure that was easy to see coming. That's going to hurt this deal. My fear with this merger is that even if Kroger can appease justice, they'll have a much harder time getting it past Lena Khan's FTC. And the market clearly agrees with that assessment, which is why both stocks got hammered on Friday. Bottom line, it is an uphill climb. Now, I believe this merger won't hurt the consumer because there's so little overlap between Kroger and Albertsons, and you want a powerful competitor to Walmart. However, this Justice Department and the FTC hate it when companies do these spinoffs to get regulatory approval for the merger. So I expect a long slog that wears people down as they wait for the deal to close. Mad Money is back after the break. Coming up, 
This wagon train's hitched and ready to haul. Circle up to Mad Money for a can't-miss look at Wells Fargo. Next. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Last Friday, I gave this real quick rundown on the four high-profile banks that reported that morning. But I didn't have enough time to truly focus on the one that is by far my favorite. And that is the tremendous quarter from Wells Fargo. Boy, remember how bad they were? It's not just because Wells is the single largest holding for my charitable trust, although we're certainly feeling pretty darn good after the stock's terrific rally over the past couple of sessions. It's not really about the stock, though, which is still down substantially versus where it was trading earlier this year. It's about the incredible progress Wells Fargo has been making under the leadership of CEO Charlie Scharf, who took over nearly three years ago. So tonight, let's do this. Let's do a deep dive right here, because even after the recent bounce, I think the stock's worth owning. And I'm telling people from the trust that and it, it's such a big position, but I still wish I could buy more. First thing you need to know about Wells Fargo is that this is going to be the best bank to own when the Federal Reserve's aggressively raising interest rates like they are. Remember, I like the financials here because the Fed's tightening. Every rate hike means they can take your deposits, which they pay you next to nothing for, and reinvest that money risk-free in short-term treasuries. What a trade! I like to say the banks make more money just by turning the lights on every day. So Wells Fargo reported a clean top and bottom line beat and gave you upside guidance for the fourth quarter. The most important part of the equation was the net interest margin, also known as the NIM, net interest margin. The spread between what they pay for your deposits and the return they get from their investments, whether they're talking loans or bond purchases. The money they make from this spread is what's known as the net interest income. And this year, Wells Fargo's net interest income has massively outperformed Wall Street's expectations. Earlier this year, management said they were looking at an 8% net interest income growth versus 2021. When Wells reported last Friday, they raised that forecast again. This was extraordinary to 24% growth. Think about that. Three times. These guys are printing money. Thanks to the higher yield curve. You hear me? Printing money. Of course, that's true for all the major central uh, banks. They're all, the money center banks are doing well. What sets Wells Fargo apart is that they've got the best net interest margin in the group, the most important statistic that I follow, the widest spread between what they pay for deposits and what they earn from their loans or their investments. J.P. Morgan, by contrast, got a 2.09% net interest margin. Citigroup's got a 2.32% net interest margin. Bank of America, which had a great quarter today, 2.51. But Wells at 283. Remember, this is the most important number, and you want the largest percentage, and there it is. Those 32 basis points may not sound like much in absolute terms, but from the perspective of the banks, that adds up to an enormous amount of money. It's honestly kind of incredible. 
Wells Fargo used to be the worst of the major banks because it woefully mismanaged. After three years of Charlie Sharp's leadership, their core banking business is much more lucrative than any of their competitors, and I think Charlie is just getting started. Point number two, everyone in the industry is worried about out-of-control expenses. The other banks have pretty begun you know, to move pretty aggressively to get their costs under control. But Wells Fargo is a turnaround story. They're way ahead of the curve on cost controls. The company's now in year two of Schwarz's multi-year, Schwarz multi-year restructuring plan, where he's trying to make the bank more streamlined and a better operator. At the beginning of the year, management said they're looking to achieve $10 billion in gross savings, up from the original forecast of $8 billion. Wells Fargo is making that happen through layoffs. Over the past year, the total headcount has already fallen from 254,000 to 239,000. Contrast that would say with J.P. Morgan, which has added more than 22,000 people over the same period. How many of those people are really making money for them? Or Bank of America, which has added more than 3,000 people. Wells just has a huge lead on the expense reduction front because it was reducing headcount while others were adding employees. And Charlie Scharf knows where to find the costs and take them out. In the banking business, when we want to measure the success of cross-cutting, you know what we did? We had another thing, another ratio. I'm trying to teach all this stuff. We look at something called the efficiency ratio. That's the non-interest expense divided by total revenue. It tells you how much you get for your spending. This quarter, Wells Fargo saw its headline efficiency ratio increase from 71 to 73%. That's bad. Uh, this number lowers better. However, that increase all came down to one-time items. When you back those out and only look at the core expenses, the efficiency ratio is headed in the right direction. Third, unlike Citigroup or J.P. Morgan, to say nothing of Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo has far less capital markets exposure. The rest of the industry is racking up these huge shortfalls in IPOs, right? There's no IPOs, right? Bond not already. There's no bonds. Because nobody wants to raise money in this particular environment. Not with the Fed doing what it's doing. It, it, at least if they have a choice. For example, Morgan Stanley's capital markets business was down 63% year-over-year. That's a charitable trust position. It really hurt us. Fourth, surprisingly, Wells Fargo actually does have an M&A business. I didn't know this. They're building an investment bank here, but only in the areas that are working right now. For example, when Kroger announced its acquisition of Albertsons on Friday, I was surprised to see CEO Rodney McMullen mentioned Wells Fargo as an advisor. This is a brand new business line with no risk and extremely high margins. Fifth, I told you I got a lot of reasons why you should buy Wells. I think it's crucial that Charlie Sharp has changed all of his direct reports and reshuffled the board. Wells Fargo was a mess when he took over. But those guys are all gone now. I've, oh, I'm, look, I've always been a believer here because he did such a great job as CEO of Visa. And, for, and he was also with Bank of New York Mellon. Now, let's get to the two most important items here. I said before that the Federal Reserve's interest rates gives banks a fabulous net interest margin boost, right? But the downside of rate hikes is that they cause unemployment, which leads to customers defaulting on their loans. We're not seeing that at Wells Fargo yet, though. While loan losses are increasing from historic levels, they're still at very low levels, with only 17 basis points of net charge loss in the, in the third quarter. That's incredible. Plus, it's worth noting that Wells has seen less loan growth in recent years versus its peers. But that is good news heading to a slowdown. Because in a recession, the worst performing loans tend to be the last ones you made. Okay? The recent ones. Finally, let's talk capital returns. When the pandemic hit, Wells slashed its quarterly dividend from $0.51 cents down to $0.10. Cents. Ouch. But as the economy improved, 
they've steadily boosted the payout back to 30 cents. Now it yields 2.7%. They also got a lot of room for a buyback, although they haven't done any buybacks in the last two quarters. The regulators limit how much you can spend on this stuff depending on your capital ratio. And with Wells Fargo, they're well ahead of where they need to be. The bank has a lot of room to, to do buy, buybacks if they're, if they're going to go do them. They have a lot of room. Goldman thinks they can move aggressively to repurchase their shares next year. I agree with that. Keep in mind, Wells Fargo is still dealing with an asset cap from the Federal Reserve as a result of their past malfeasance. That's limited their ability to grow, although there's a possibility of the cap being lifted next year as Sharp's cleanup efforts continue and the underlying business keeps improving. It will be five years in the, for after the first week of February that they've been under these caps. That, how much punishment do they have to absorb? It's a totally different bank. But honestly, we have no idea when that will happen, so I wouldn't put it in your calculus, even as I think it's unfair that, it's, that they haven't done anything yet. Charlie, if it's not the same bank, why do they keep getting hurt? Why do the regulators keep cracking down on them? I don't get it. But here's the bottom line. After five rate hikes this year, Wells Fargo has now taken the lead as the best net interest margin play in the group, and their multi-year turnaround plan is finally bearing fruit. With the stock trading just nine times next year's earnings estimates, as I told members of the investing club, with that great net interest margin, it's by far my favorite name in this new leadership group. I say we take calls. Let's go to Josh in Georgia. Josh. Yes, Jim. Over the past few weeks, you have mentioned how you believe that when this market turns, financials are going to be the leader uh, in the turnaround. I was calling to see if you think SoFi fits into that category. You know, there's a moment in the J.P. Morgan conference call, and I like to read all these calls, where Jamie Dimon says a lot of these newer fintech companies are going to get acquired. Now, I think Anthony Noto is doing a great job uh, running so far. It's not worked yet right here, but I think it is a terrific buy, and I'm not backing away against Noto. I think at 4 bucks, it makes a lot of sense. All right, here. Wells Fargo is by far my favorite bank in this new leadership group. Hey, much more man money ahead. Uh, CBC's Bob Pisani has written a new book about all he has learned on the street over the years, and I'm discussing his latest work with the man himself, and it is a great book. Then, when meeting investors this weekend, there was one saying that summed it all up. I'll reveal what it is and why I think staying the course in this market could still be your best strategy. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. We're eager to celebrate Mad Money's three-month anniversary here on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange tomorrow night. And uh, I've been filming Squawk on the Street since 2010. But Bob Pisani, the CNBC legendary senior markets correspondent, has now been here for 25 years with a front row seat for everything from the Asian financial crisis, dot-com bubble, to 2011, and the financial crisis. And now he's out with a new book. It's called Shut Up and Keep Talking. That's a nod to the fickleness of live TV, where he tells captivating stories from his quarter century at the stock exchange, along with some really important investing principles, which I love. This is a great read. So I am so thrilled to talk to the man himself. Bob, welcome to Mad Money. So great to see you, Jim. I remember when I became the stocks correspondent in 1997, one of the first things I did, trekked down to Wall and Water Street, Kramer Berkowitz, (laughs) and I met you. You had a discussion. We were talking about disk drives. You had a big thing going on disk drives, and we've been friends ever since. Oh, my, we sure have. And you have been such a great source of common sense. So I'm going to start with today. 
people just said, hey, you know, coming in this morning, it's going to be really bad. And then last Friday, they said, come in because it be really good because of Thursday. Why can't people get, any, get anything right? Well, it's really tough right now because we have a situation where nobody knows what the earnings are going to look like. Right. So are we going to be down in 2023 on the earnings? Are we going to be up? What's the right multiple? The S&P, remember, the stock market trades on future earnings. And we don't know what these earnings are going to be. Some people think they're going to be OK. Other people think it's going to be a disaster. So that what we call the dispersion of opinions is huge. You've got people who think we're at... 2,500 or 3,000 on the S&P, you think, you got people think we're going to be at 3,900. I've never seen such a wide diversity of opinions. That's what leads to volatility. I have it either. Now, one of the points that you make in the book that I love is uh, you're not sure what's going to happen, but the one thing you can't do, and you're here, so you see it every day, you cannot time the market. You cannot go in yep. and out. You have to stay the course. One of the things that's really important is to recognize with market time, you have to be right going in and right going out. And almost nobody gets that right. That's a real problem. There's a certain unknowability about the future that we have. So you have to stay the course. Staying in the market is the best thing. Everybody has these stories, and we can show the numbers are in the book, that if you were in the S&P 500 for $1,000 since 1970, maybe you'll have $300,000 by now. But if you were out of the market on the five best days, you'd be down like 35 percent or so. It's literally that much. You've got but to we be, don't know what, the, what five days they are. Right. You see, because you don't know the five days you are able, you will miss. Yes, right. You will just by, uh, by the law That's of average, right. you will miss. And now, the, by the way, the people will say, well, if you weren't in, in the five worst days, you'd do better, too. And that's true. But the market tends to go up over time. Right. Three that's out really of four important. years, the S&P is up. So remember that. Right. And that's because why? Because of capitalism. Right. Capitalism, ruthless allocator of capital. Now, uh, the ruthless allocator of capital, to some degree, has made it so this place is no longer as bustling as when right. you started. Tell us what happened here. And there's not a lot of characters like the old. This is a classic example of technological disruption in the best sense. When I got down here in 1997, there were 4,000 people on the floor. Imagine this floor. 4,000 people. You couldn't move. And they did 80% of the trading uh, in New York Stock Exchange stocks. Right here on the floor, mostly, largely open outcry, even back then. People yelling at each other. Today, there's a few hundred people. They do 15 to 20% of the volume. What happened? Technological disruption. Electronic trading, better software, better hardware, enabled computers to match buy and sell orders for stocks, lowered uh, uh, bid asks, made pricing a bit more efficient. I love the floor. I'm a floor guy. But I recognized even back then, technology marches right. on. That's why you and I, all of us, we have to continue to embrace new technology. Well, because, I mean, everybody, I, we don't recommend trading around, but Trading costs have come down gigantically from Dramatically. We and look at, you look, uh, 1995, say, 90, early 1990s. If you wanted to buy 100 shares of IBM, you might ha be charged 2% commission at that point. Look what happens now. It's practically zero. It's not free, but the consumer, the average trader, is getting the best deal they've gotten ever. Now, people, you, this, shut up and keep talking. It's, it's a great way to talk, to describe what your job is. Yeah. And I know people are saying, what is he talking about? Shut up and keep talking. I, I, I know I don't want to give away this, the story of the book, but it's such a great example yeah. of what your job well, is. Well, I was talking to the, the, the publisher, and we were trying to come up with a title. And the publisher said, people are interested in the mechanics of television. How yeah. does it operate? And the publisher said, well, what do they say to you while you're waiting to go on the air? Because you have an earpiece, just like Jim's got one right now. It's called an IFB. And I said, well, generally. By the way, you actually explained the initials. I didn't know myself. Interruptible foldback. Yes. It, it, <laughs> don't even ask about that. Who cares? The point is that 
they say, what do they say to you? And I said, well, they can say anything they want. The producers can say anything. But generally, it's some variation on the word rap, which means shut up, right. or stretch, which means keep talking. So shut up and keep talking is what you hear most of the time. And they said, that's it. That's the title. Oh, of the I book. love that. The last thing I want to mention is, is that you talk stocks all the time here. You always ask about it. But you make it very clear and you do an unbelievable job covering them that ETFs remain the best way for people, particularly people who don't spend a lot of time and don't have a lot of knowledge about how the stock market works. Yes. They'll do better with the diversified portfolio. The average investor will do better owning a simple index fund, right. for example, average an S&P investor. 500 long term. The key point about investing, and I learned this from Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, had the most impact on me is stay invested long term, have a plan, stay invested generally in low cost index funds. If you do active management, make sure you don't pay too much for it. Because what the problem with active management, and Bogle did a whole series explaining this, is if you're spending 2% for active management, you're going to have enormous costs over the years. And the difference between a 1% cost and a 2% cost over 30 years, power of compounding interest is enormous. So so if you do active management, make sure it's low cost active management. Excellent. Okay, so the book is Shut Up and Keep Talking. I learned so I I feel like I've been in the business a long time. I learned so much. And the charts alone. And then there's stories that we didn't even get to go into about the great art cash. And it's all in here. Thank you so much, Bob. Great to talk to you. you. Man Money's back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. It is time to show the lightning round. Play this out. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Come to the lightning round. Christmas over. Start with. Let's start with Jerry in California. Jerry. So, yeah, Jim. Yeah, yo, we, yo, we, Jerry. We don't, want to talk, we don't want to talk about that dog AT&T stock. But they seem no. to have uh, unloaded on us another dog, um, even on a day like today. I want your opinion on holding or cutting loose and getting out now of the Warner Brothers Discovery stock. I can't. I can't. I like profitable companies with good balance sheet. That is the definition of that. It is not that. Let's go to John in Arizona. John. How you doing, Jimmy Chill? I have a chill doing fine. I've been chilling. Eagles make me yeah. chill. What's up? I have a stock that I've had for a while. Um, it has been in phase three for quite a while. I wanted to know if this thing is ever going to hit between 50 and 100. And the name of the stock is Vero Incorporation. I'm, I'm familiar with Vero. They do have, uh, they're working on a very important COVID uh, drug. But I will say 64% of that uh, company's float is sold short, which means a lot of people betting against it. So it could be a very binary, up big, down big situation. How about we go to Bob in Florida? Bob! Jimmy Chill, thank you for taking my call, sir. How are you oh, doing? Thank you. I'm chilling down here. What's going on? Oh, not much. Not much. Hey, so I was at this restaurant chain over the weekend, and boy, was it jam-packed. What do you think about Texas Roadhouse, TXRE? I think Texas Roadhouse is an incredibly well-run, terrific chain, and I completely agree with you. However, it's not new. It's up to 24 times earnings, so we have to wait for that one to come down because it's had two big up uh, moves. Let's go to Scott in California. Scott! 
Jim, I just want to say I've appreciated your opinions for many years now. I like there the way we you go. Think. Thank you. Do my best for you. Thank you. The company I'm calling about, I've had a position in since their beginning, thanks to a uh, surprise dividend from my position in Merck. Uh, but their stock's been down about 30% in the last six months, and I'm just wondering if you think now is a good time to increase my position. The company I'm calling about is ticker, ticker symbol OGM. You know, I remember when this got purchased. I have got to do work. I thought this company was a great company. And so I am not going to give you a, I am going to, to huddle with Ben Stoto, who is the best there is. And we're going to find out what the story is, and then we're going to come back to you, maybe as soon as possible. Oh, gee, and let's go to Monica in Michigan. Monica. Booyah, Ben. I am used to Monica, Booyah. and I would like to know what you think about Dice Therapeutics. Well, again, this one just had a good test, and the stock is up gigantically, so I cannot recommend it particularly because the company is losing money hand over fist. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, hit the markets, but not before hitting the books. Kramer doubles down on his buy and homework philosophy next. Jim Kramer, diehard of the dollar. Hey, Jimmy, love the show. My five-year-old grandson loves to watch your show. I have to thank you for making us money when it's there to be made. Our world is a better place with you in it. Stocks are a bummer, Jim. Stocks are a bummer. There, that sums up a weekend of meeting investors in Philadelphia who came to talk stocks, sports, and spirits in a bunch of liquor stores and a couple of restaurants where I was signing bottles as taste ambassador for my wife's new Mezcal. I know today's rally wouldn't shock most of the people I spoke to, but it certainly would shock them if this rally continued to tomorrow. They're so used to having their hearts just completely smashed by this darn thing. And they don't want anything to do with it anymore. Instead, they want CDs. They want two-year treasuries. They yield four and a half. They love that. Sadly, I, I, I really couldn't disagree. They have been burned enough, and they don't want to be burned again. I did come back and say that you might be making a long-term mistake if you bail on the market here. I mean, Apple's terrific as long as you own it, don't trade it. I like Amazon. I think Meta Platforms is oversold. We've had a big decline. Does it really make sense to sell a lot here? But the response was always the same. They're bummers. Listen, I know bummers. Understand that I bought my first stock more than 40 years ago, an orange grove company, American Agronomics, after reading an article about it in a magazine. It was the winner. The day after I bought it, there was a surprise flash freeze. Wiped out the entire company. I lost everything, everything being about $180. I could have said stocks are a bummer, but I soldiered on, kept buying stocks. Eventually, I got a bunch right, right enough to start building real wealth. That's why I wish I told people you need that balance. You need some individual stock exposure. Don't go all ETF, please. Uh, If you're watching, we can identify, we can teach you how to identify quality stocks. We can teach you how to sell stocks when they get overheated so you don't get hurt. Remember, we do buy and homework here, not buy and hold. I do want to go back to 1979, though, when I bought that American Agronomics. 
I didn't have much money when I started buying stocks. I've been a homicide reporter. I alternated between putting 100 bucks in Fidelity Magellan Fund and then next month 100 in a brokerage cap. I was real young and read all these articles that pointed out I had my whole life ahead of me if I screwed up. Oh, and I screwed up a lot. But eventually I noticed that there had been a wave of mergers among the oil companies. So I went to this mercantile library in New York and I took out anything that was public about every oil company. I ended up buying a couple and caught a takeover bid, then another. Then I looked up some more, some of the smaller ones. I hit again. Next thing you know, I had about 2500 bucks. With that, I bought in money, in-the-money call options on a bunch of oils. And I hit big on a company called Natomas when it got taken over by Diamond Shamrock. Next thing you know, I had about $4,000. Now, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. The market's smarter than I am. What I am saying is I made a lot of money picking stocks, a lot more than I did investing in my mutual fund, although I loved having both. Notice, I started small, so I didn't want to hear, you don't, you don't have enough money to do this. You do. That said, I have never met an index fund evangelist who thinks it's okay to pick individual stocks. Not even one. My whole life is dedicated to the mix from when I first bought shares of Magellan Fund when I was living in my Ford Fairmont in Los Angeles. I did great with that. But with individual stocks, I did do better. So go ahead and pick your favorite from the investing club. Notice something from work or your day-to-day life. What medicine is your doctor thinking about? What's everyone wearing? The best ideas are often right in front of you, as long as you put in some homework to make sure the financial side holds up. And always remember, if you're younger, you have your whole life ahead of you. So put some money in an index fund, but leave something for individual stocks, because that's where you can really swing for the fences. And in this world, sometimes you need to swing for the fence. I like to say, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'd find it just for you, right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.